0: Do I need... Do I
1: need... Do I need... A
0: wire... A wire... In my heart... In
1: my heart...
0: In my heart...
1: Do I really need a wire in my heart?
0: A Boston Scientific Podcast.
2: History seems to depict... A lot of these changes in therapies and new therapies and new directions as a smooth progression. And when you start digging in, you find out, no, no, this wasn't smooth. The new therapies are oftentimes counter to what others are doing. It takes a stunning level of commitment. At the beginning, it's usually a pioneer that everybody thinks is wrong.
0: That's why it's Stahl. He's an electrical engineer who's worked in the biomedical field for most of his career. He's a fellow in arrhythmia marketing for Boston Scientific. Basically, a guru with all things cardiac rhythm management.
1: Yeah, and we're talking history of defibrillators of the implantable type, leading up to subcutaneous implantable defibrillators, or SICDs. Very good.
3: So sometimes the heart's electrical impulses go haywire, and a lethal arrhythmia happens. And as the man says, Uh, if that's
2: not treated immediately, patients will die.
1: So Wyatt, as a nurse, and for Fred and Jason who are PAs, this may be a bit more obvious for us, but for the listeners who are not medical, which arrhythmias are we talking about here?
2: The three we would see most commonly, one is monomorphic VT. So the, the ventricles firing in a certain pattern doesn't pump near as much blood as it normally should. And then you have polymorphic VT, which you still have this cycling, but it's going to change a lot, beat by beat, and it's varying, and that one pumps much less blood. And then you have ventricular fibrillation, and that just looks like the baseline is just going up and down and up and down, and there's no blood being pumped at all.
0: Implantable defibrillators are for preventing death from sudden cardiac arrest, which essentially causes sudden cardiac death. Or, as Wyatt puts it...
2: Being fine one moment to being in sudden cardiac arrest and then ultimately death in a matter of a, you know seconds, literally, to make that transition. They're not symptomatic.
1: Can we talk about epidemiology? How big of an issue is sudden cardiac death?
2: It's the leading cause of death in the United States.
0: But if you do a little digging, you guys, this goes back a long way. So they actually figured out, we need to shock people out of death like because a few hundred years ago.
2: ...spin, and they generated static electricity, and it would charge up in something called a Leiden's jar, which is basically a capacitor. And it was a glass jar, and then they'd coat, coat it with, like, gold on the inside and and gold on the outside and have them separate. and they would charge that up, and then they would place the, the paddles on this young, young boy, and he recovered.
0: Fast forward a few centuries, and we're talking implantable cardiac defibrillators.
2: Well, the the ICD came about uh, particularly because of Dr. Michelle Moralski, who's an Israeli physician, and one of his teachers was Dr. Heller. And Dr. Heller had a sudden cardiac arrest in the hospital, and they were able to treat it successfully. Um, But based on Dr. Moralski's experience, he knew that there was a high risk this could happen again.
0: Oh, I hate foreshadowing. I feel like I know where this is going.
2: The second time, he was not resuscitated in time, and he did die. And so this really was the moment where Dr. Moralski said, we've really got to come up with some better treatment because this is all about timing. You, you've got to be quick. And the closer you are from your event to actually having that external defibrillation, the higher the survival rate. So if you can get there in 30 seconds, for example, survival rate very, very high. And by the way, I should say, then uh, he also worked very closely then with Dr. Maurer.
1: So, what do really brilliant pioneer buddies do when no one is digging their ideas?
2: They move somewhere else and build cool stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So, they came to the United States. One of the things they had done, though, is they basically built a little circuit board with little Duracell batteries to prove that you could do it relatively small. It was still quite large, but, you know, proof of concept. Some says, well, it can't be done. It was like, well, look at this over here. We did this with off-the-shelf parts.
0: Mort, my good man, grab those double A's and some of that 14-gauge wire. You mean 12-gauge, and don't micromanage. Fine, a little bit of both. And I think it was my idea, so... Our idea, our idea. I'll grab both and uh, and get a soldering gun. Now who's micromanaging? Don't forget the tape, Mort. No tape, no good. All right, Michelle, stop with the lecturing already. You get the stuff on your list, I'll get the stuff on mine.
3: Working together for years and still gotta put up with Michelle list.
2: At that time in particular is we're well before the, the age of computer power. So those early devices had almost no memory at all. They would just remember that they delivered a shock or delivered a charge cycle. Um, they wouldn't store much of any data. Uh, they weren't programmable. Uh, and then the algorithms were designed, for example, if, you, if your heart rate got above a certain specific rate, like say 170 beats a minute, that would be a shock. And they'd have up to four shocks, the very earliest devices, and later increase that to five. But that process was uh, really cutting edge to take these technologies that were really... So we're
0: going from Radio Shack to...
1: Very high-tech, computers, algorithms.
0: Garage project to a device that knows when to shock you. Mm -hmm. Incredible.
2: We're uh, basically done from when this was market-released, the clinical started in 1980, and then 93 is when the endocardial leads were first approved.
1: Hey, Wyatt, can you talk about the size of the early device and how it was attached? I'm guessing... It was pretty big compared to now, right?
2: If you took two decks of cards and stacked them on top of each other, it was slightly larger than that. So these patches and wires were on the outside of the heart, and then the device was down on the abdomen. Then the device lasted about, about a year and a half was typical. So but they definitely have become much more reliable and smaller and we've also moved the implants to be pectoral so they're they're like a very large pacemaker today.
0: So that
3: answers the question of size and placement
2: of the early ones.
0: Yeah, but how did we get to the point of electricity even being an option? I mean, we
2: had medications, right?
1: Yeah, so with any medical endeavor, we need those trusty old clinical trials.
2: And the CAST trial is saying, well, let's start at the beginning, just as soon as we've decided a patient's going to get medication, include everybody. And that trial continued, and you could see the two curves were diverging, the survival curves. And so uh, virtually everybody involved in that clinical trial is looking and saying, oh, you see, the flecainide and anconide they're doing their, their job, in the amiodarone, they're preventing these... Why
0: it's talking about the CAST trial, it compared drug to placebo... It turns out drugs to prevent arrhythmia
2: didn't do such a good job after all. What everyone thought. In fact, the placebo, the sugar tablet pills, those patients have survived at a statistically higher rate. So that was, that was one of the major trials. Uh, I was actually in an audience hearing about some of these results with a large group of physicians, and you could literally hear a pin drop once they presented this information because it was quite startling to hear some of the major medications at that time were supposed to prevent sudden cardiac death were actually causing more than they prevented.
1: So drugs didn't work, but we're talking about defibrillators here. So what are the studies saying about electricity for the heart?
2: That was a time period where there was some amazing science done because after, after they made it one study, It was followed by the MADE-IT-2 study, and that turned out to be a much more significant study in its impact. And what they found was a statistically significantly higher survival rate with those that had the defibrillator.
0: A couple of pretty important trials here. MADE-IT-1 was a proof-of-principle study, basically saying ICDs do work. MADE-IT-2 showed that prophylactic ICDs work. They actually save lives. I'm really trying to
3: wrap my head around this whole idea of having a device in me.
1: You mean, are you always going to be aware of it, perseverate about it?
0: Be paralyzed with fear? Just kidding, Fred.
1: <laughs> actually, that's a little bit far from the truth. People adapt pretty well. And I think what's interesting about this device is people go on to do normal things again.
3: I actually think that's how I'd handle it. Now I got this device in me, so it's skydiving, it's marathons, it's, it's uh, boxing.
2: Overall, there's a very high adoption rate. Uh, most patients feel relatively comfortable about having this system in their body. Uh, And then you'll you'll see the extremes or patients that have some have really increased the amount of things they do because now they feel they're protected.
1: Why it's really hard not to keep thinking about this two decks of cards. Can you talk about the size of newer defibrillators today and what's evolved in the function of ICDs?
2: Today's defibrillator, uh, from a size standpoint, you think of that original defibrillator I was telling you about. They are seventy-five percent smaller. From a weight standpoint, they're also about twenty-five percent of the the weight. So they're I, I make that analogy kind of like a large pacemaker. Um, so uh, if you would, if you take a credit card, you could lay it over a modern defibrillator that goes in the pectoral region. From a thickness standpoint, most are a little bit more than one centimeter. And from a longevity standpoint, uh, a lot of our devices right now are in that 10 to 14-year range of longevity. Uh, And one of the other huge things, though, too, is the diagnostics, the fact that for a while now we've been recording the signals inside the heart. So you can actually see, oh, that's what the device detected, and that's how it treated it. Now you can actually have different options. You could adjust the, the detection criteria for the specific patient, which those early devices had no programmability. And we got more data also out of them. And then for us, the PRX-1 was the first device that had the multi-tier therapy. Says, well, so
1: I- lifespan of the devices from one and a half years to 14 years.
0: So we've got a complex little computer the size of a credit card that can shock varying arrhythmias at varying speeds. Okay, we keep throwing out the term shock, but how does it feel?
1: Like an electric fence shock, like yeah. I stuck my finger in an outlet kind of shock. Which is
2: painful. Is, an, is that 30 to 40 joule yeah. amount of energy. So that's kind of what the device is doing. In fact, it, I like that analogy because uh, patients oftentimes say it's like getting kicked in the chest.
1: So why when I have a patient that's getting a cardioversion and doing that procedure, they're sedated. They don't feel the shock or the kick. Patients with ICDs are presumably passed out when their shock is delivered. So do they recall it? What would you say to that?
2: When patients have one of these fast arrhythmias, many times they'll they'll pass out, so they may be unaware of the shock. And I actually did a follow up in one of those patients that was in the clinical trial, and he was a gentleman that was he was uh, hunting up north, and was by himself in a field, and all of a sudden he woke up. He was lying on his back, looking straight up, no idea what happened. So they brought him in, and we interrogated his device. And on the the electrogram, the signal from inside the heart, he was going along in sinus rhythm, had a PVC, and went right into VF.
0: So here's the psychology of it all, right? Yeah. I mean, you're out walking, you're doing your thing.
1: You're alive, normal, and then you're not.
0: Pretty deep and kind of scary. But, I mean, that's why we're doing the podcast. We're talking about this device that continues to evolve and save lives. So let's get back to Wyatt and hear more about the ICD.
2: So we we did a great job of improving the batteries on our implantable devices. So now we're looking at much better longevities. And we've done uh, substantial work on improving the reliability long-term of the leads or electrodes in the heart. But you still have a challenge. Over time, these will start failing, or they'll have infections, various other things, which are pretty consequential when you have to take I think, something out of the heart.
1: ICDs are advanced. So, what are we talking about in terms of complexity, and how is the SICD different?
2: So, a transvenous device will easily have more than 130 different programmable settings. Now, the the SICD basically has about seven things you program, including off and on. You just do a couple of programming steps, and it is going to work for the vast, vast majority of patients. A lot of sophistication under the hood to make it look simple. And so it's a little bit more like an external defibrillation, except it's, it's below several layers already, but it stays completely outside the chest cavity. So the way I like to look at this is you want to be less invasive for as long as you can. And so for the, most patients, that first device to prevent sudden cardiac death doesn't need to have something endovascularly.
0: So here's the question. Do I really need a wire in my heart?
2: Because the primary purpose is just to defibrillate, to get them out of the arrhythmia.
0: We have evolved quite a bit. Now we don't need to be inside the chest. So can
2: anyone get this?
1: I asked him, and this is the short answer followed by a long answer to my follow-up question.
2: So if you have a need for pacing today and you need the defibrillator, then you have to have a transvenous system.
1: Eventually, patients with an SICD, will they end up needing a transvenous ICD?
2: Well, predicting is hard. Uh, Making predictions is very difficult, especially if it involves the future. Uh, The other aspect, though, is that with sudden cardiac arrest, when you start identifying a large population set risk, their rate of having appropriate therapy, actually having the event you're looking for, is maybe 4 or 5% per year. When you look at it from that standpoint, you say, well, if I can stay outside the vasculature and reduce all those risks... For something that's occurring at a relatively low rate, um, SICD may be a better option for me. And they found that this particular placement was the best. Now, the electrode that's along the sternum. Another key aspect is, aside from delivering the shock, it also has two little ring electrodes, so it helps it to. uh, Those those are used for the sensing to determine if the patient's having an arrhythmia that you need to treat.
1: Why it's saying that the less invasive approach is best,
0: and if you only need a device for defibrillation this one really ought to strongly mm-hmm. be considered. So basically the device doesn't pace.
3: And as he mentioned, the sensing component. How about the shock delivery, Leah?
1: We're gonna start getting into that now. And it's interesting with this device, it's a little bit more patient than other devices.
2: SICD, since it's not pacing, first of all, I can kind of step back and say, i want to look more at the arrhythmia and see what's happening. And by doing that, i will take a little more time but then I'll have a higher likelihood of, yeah, I got it right, I should deliver therapy. Waiting a little longer actually was better for most patients.
0: Waiting for anything in life is hard. I mean, I don't like giving patients adenosine because of that dramatic pause before they actually cardiovert, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I also know the truth about arrhythmia, which Wyatt gives us a sober warning of here.
2: Uh, The one thing about sudden cardiac death, though, that's very clear is that if you don't have that therapy, your risk of dying is extremely high.
3: Well, that's a grim reminder
0: of what this is really all about. Yeah, I mean, but let's sprinkle a little happy dust on this, okay? (laughs) Yeah,
1: because the goal is to prevent bad outcomes after all. And a definite plus for this device is how patients are actually monitored today.
3: Yeah, no more holding your phone up to the device or someone getting back to you in a week after the event. Exactly.
1: Like, like a telephone telephone? Yeah, like a telephone. Not my telephone. Old school
0: telephone. telephone.
2: Uh, like no. the rotary uh, 15 one. 15 years is that we can do more home monitoring, basically having a bedside unit that uh, collects data from the implanted device and then it can send it to a server so that you can actually, a physician can go and look at this information remotely. And there's a lot of patients where they don't know they had an arrhythmia. They, know, they didn't know they had therapy. Um, it's just not that uncommon. You patient has sudden cardiac arrest; they pass out, they wake up, everything's fine. You know, we had uh, stories of patients like they're watching TV.
0: Also, we now interrupt your regularly scheduled. You for tuning back into the program,
2: and we didn't realize they just had a sudden cardiac arrest; they could have died.
1: Why we should probably talk more about the leads, which seems to be a trouble area for some other devices in the past. What about this
2: device? So leads are designed to last. 10 years or more, um, but the more active the patient, then you'll start seeing them, uh, they, they could potentially just wear out or fracture, just become a body motion uh, earlier than that. Mm-hmm. But if you take the 10-year mark, you might have um, 80% are still doing okay or 90% are still doing okay, but th- that also means that you've had anywhere 10 to 20% that have had to be replaced. Devices do checks on the lead every day.
0: Well, nothing really lasts forever.
1: Right. And these devices are pretty sophisticated and perform self-checks regularly.
0: So there's a problem. You're
2: going to know it pretty fast. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So what, what does it really take to break a lead?
2: One of the primary ones, if you've been in a significant car accident, something you know, with a physical assault to your body. Um, like, for example, uh, not with the SIC system, but previous devices we had with ICDs. Remember a patient that basically hit the steering wheel In a front end accident, so he didn't, vehicle before airbags. And that was violent enough that it actually fractured the lead. It's got to be something fairly physically violent.
3: A lot of force needed. Push-ups and stuff are fine.
1: At least after a while, right? And remember, people go back to living their, their physically active lives with these. So they're designed for this. Is the SICD gaining traction? What's supporting its use?
2: Worldwide, there's about 275,000 defibrillators, or high-voltage devices, I'd say, implanted per year. It's right, right in that ballpark. Uh, the studies are coming out more and more. Uh, we've had, like, the Praetorian study was a comparative study between transvenous and, and SICDs. And that was a non-inferiority study, which to me was a very stunning thing. I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer. I've worked with these devices for a long time. And I think we've developed an incredible amount of sophistication with transvenous. And here's the newcomer on the block. And it's already doing as well.
1: Where is the SICD headed, Wyatt? Are there big changes that are coming down the pipeline?
2: Uh, We'll see the SICD become smaller uh, and and gain lots of capabilities. We're actually going to have a small pacing system that is entirely within the ventricle. That that would be it could be implanted separately. And so essentially saying, well, you we have the defibrillator now that covers you for sudden cardiac death. If you need further therapy down the line, we can implant this pacing seed in the ventricle with no lead. It's just a you know very small. So hopefully you caught that. I did
0: a wireless pacing seed in the heart. That is Bluetooth on a whole new level, but probably not going to interfere with your wireless earbuds, I'm guessing. No. And all of this tech just seems to be getting smaller, faster, and better. Lasser,
2: but what he says next is pretty interesting. Uh, capacitors and batteries are two areas that tend to work incrementally. They get a little bit better, a little bit better. They're like the 5 to 10% improvement very different than microcircuitry where we're used to like doubling the speed or the capacity of a, of a memory chip, you know, every 18 months or every year. So microcircuit wise capabilities inside the device that you see huge jumps over the periods of years. Um, but in terms of really getting a lot smaller than what we have now, um, it, it's getting to be a challenge to get them too much smaller.
0: Yeah, I can see how that could be a limitation.
1: So the next story he tells is pretty cool. Uh, We've all had those emotional moments with our patients when something goes really, really well. Wyatt's been doing this a while, and he was able to witness a monumental procedure. Remember, up until then, they had to do a thoracotomy on all of these ICD patients. But he had a front row seat to the dawn of a new era in defibrillator placement.
2: So it was a clinical trial. I was a clinical engineer. We were in Milwaukee, and this was being done in the operating room because that's where they always were being done and didn't know if this was going to work. And so they implanted the lead, induced VF, because you have to test it. So you induce this lethal arrhythmia, device detects it, charges, delivers a shock, patient comes out of it. Everybody in the OR clapped, including the surgeon. And we just like, like that. And you know, they were all recognizing this is so much better for the patients than actually having to crack their chest. And that that was one just uh, to be in the midst of that and realize this is a complete sea change in how this therapy is working.
3: You know, after meeting Wyatt and being part of this,
0: it occurs to me that this means more to him than just cool gadgets. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, that story does really make it real mm. for him.
1: Yeah, transformative. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the feeling I get.
0: Point for the pioneers of medicine, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> funny you should mention that because... There were plenty of critics in the beginning with all of this Uh stuff, yeah.
0: Yes. I remember Wyatt talking about a scathing, you guys probably remember this too, scathing article that some doctors wrote many years ago about this kind of early research. Yeah.
1: And listen, Wyatt reads this quote by Dr. Arthur Moss, and he, he was an early rhythm management pioneer, and this was his response to this very article.
2: Fortunately, since investigators will continue to attack problems even when the prospect of solution is slight, and when sensible people shake their heads. It would be
3: hard to be a pioneer.
1: Yeah, but without them, we wouldn't have any medical marvels, and fewer lives would be saved.
0: Leah, Fred, this was fun. It's nice to have a break from the ER and talk about some innovation history with a wicked smart dude about a device that has evolved actually quite a lot and culminated in a subcutaneous implantable cardiac defibrillator
1: and no wire in the heart.
0: Thanks, guys. Next time, we're talking with Eric and Trina in The Trainer. We're going to take a little walk through the Sim Lab where I get to save a dummy. Mm. A dummy! Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Bring us home, Leah. Wyatt, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything more you'd like to say about this device or anything else? Yes.
2: We can actually save lives and improve lives. The fact that take these technologies and make a huge impact in patients' outcome. The fact that I've been able to participate and see all these changes and, and learn with it, you realize, oh, this this makes a big difference. Anytime you can have a patient that's doing better because of what you've contributed to the, those devices, you think about the, just the chance with, with defibrillators, the chance actually to have another day. know, that's... That's a that's a big thing.
0: Do I need,
1: do I need
3: a
0: wire, a wire in my heart, in
1: my heart,
0: in my heart?
1: Do I really need a wire in my heart?
0: A Boston Scientific Podcast.